You're listening to Yale Radio WYBC. This is Brainerd Carey with the lives of the artists, architects, curators, and more. Today on our show, I'm talking with Isaac Aiden. Isaac, thanks so much for being with me today. Thanks for having me, Brainerd. I really appreciate it. Isaac, we're going to talk about your show, The Numinous Sublime Part 1. It's it's running now, of course, um, through September 7th, but actually longer because there's a Part 2 uh, at David Richard Gallery. So, so let's just begin with with part one, and then we'll we'll talk about how that's how that's moving into part two. But um, the numinous sublime, it's a beautiful sounding title. Can you tell me a little bit about that? It seems in one way kind of obvious optically, but what does that mean to you? It's it's a, it's a lovely title, the numinous sublime. That's a great question. Thank you. Um, so the exhibition is made up of paintings um, exclusively and they they don't have a lot of um, they don't really have any brushwork per se um, and some of the pieces are very monumental in scale like one of the pieces is 12 by 27 feet so um, the scale plays a big part of it um, and it, I suppose it's, it's really something I've been thinking about for a long time is, is kind of addressing the sublime and I think historically, um, the kind of European sensibility with, with Kant and Burke, they had talked about the sublime um, in terms of awe or horror. And I think in a contemporary world, or you know, as I'm a contemporary person, I think that my interpretation is a bit different. So I was looking for something maybe outside of Kant or a, a different um, interpretation that kind of made sense to me at my core. And I came across um, a writer named Rudolf Otto, and he had wrote about uh, you know, this idea of a numinous sublime. And um, basically, um, previous kind of kind of hold of the sublime was was the idea of awe and terror, kind of simultaneously. So maybe uh, nature's destructive capacity, um, a hurricane, uh, a flood, something like that, or the inability to kind of move beyond it. Um, this other idea, I feel like, is a bit more personal and a bit more spiritual perspective that, that nature doesn't necessarily have to be a destructive force and that your relationship with it can can be completely different and wholly personal. And so I wanted to... Uh, you know, I grew up in Alaska and different places and I always was struck by... Uh, Know, grand vistas, and it just kind of grew up like that naturally in the capacity of the landscape. So this just really made sense to me, and it was maybe a little esoteric, digging around and trying to find a way of talking about the sublime that made sense to me personally. Well, that's so that's so interesting. And yeah, I'd, I'd like to talk more about that and also, um, you know, Rothko. I mean, the, the, as you're saying, the scale of these is, is such a big part of it. This is almost like your own chapel, right? Like Rothko's chapel. This is just these are huge works. Um, I mean, what what you're what you're talking about, of course, isn't isn't like content specifically. But when you talk about where you came from and some of these issues, you know, then to me these works, which when when you see them, they they have almost this kind of optical effect online, which is how I'm looking at them now when talking to you. You know, there's um, there's something else happening, but it it strikes me that some of the 
some of the colors, you know, when you talked about horror, you know, or uh, if that was the word you used um, as, as opposed to the kind of meditative aspect of a chapel, it, isn't that about content or, 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 or no, you know, immediately I start seeing like fires burning and, and, and Armageddon and the orange that, that covered New York when the fires were burning in Canada. Um, is that, is that too much of a stretch to bring in content like that? Um, uh, 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 no, not at all. I mean, um, one of these pieces I actually that is it's mostly yellow and orange, the predominant colors. Even though, uh, from a technical perspective, it's equal. There's actually more red in it. Equal parts yellow, red, and blue. But the predominant kind of top layer is yellow and orange. You know, it was done after the fires, and I actually just painted it in the gallery. I almost got a little carried away, like like Turner or something, and, and redid the entire piece, um, which was a bit crazy. Um, but I want the viewer to have a subjective and personal experience. I have my own experience, obviously. And, you know, as it pertains to content, um, I think these paintings could come off a bit modernist. And I have kind of my own feelings that, that, that kind of start with Claude Lorraine, and that, that that kind of goes into Turner and and Casper uh, David Friedrich and all the romantic painters and then the American you know romantic painters and then that kind of leads into tonalism color field you know uh, minimalism I feel like there's a genealogy between those painters so a lot of my content is also kind of rooted in art history but I want to, the viewer to have their own subjective um, kind of relationship to it. So the idea that you might walk into the gallery and, and recall, you know, what this, you know, what was happening during the, the wildfires in Canada or even some other day when you were on the beach in Portugal or whatever might have happened in your life is, is completely game. Um, you know, I was thinking about something that, that struck me this morning when I was kind of thinking about what I was going to say. And, um, it, it kind of crossed my mind that um, you know, a lot of art, contemporary art, or you know, has been concerned with ideas of originality. And I started thinking that one of the things that I'm really interested in is more commonality than than originality. Um, I, I've I've, off, I've focused on that before, and it's it's a bit strange for me to say, but I I do feel like I'm I'm kind of getting after an emotive quality in the paintings. Um, I want the viewer to have that type of subjective experience, but I'm such an analytical person. It's, it seems a bit peculiar, but when I think about, you know, the, the scope of art history and, and things that have been made in the past, I'm more interested in, say, you know, an Islamic vessel in the Met than trying to, you know, be fashionable with, with you know, some trending gallery or something like that. And so I'm, I'm more interested in the arc of, of human history and, and art. And, um, and in that um, kind of concern, I think what emerges are um, fundamental aspects of human nature and trying to hit that with your art. And um, so one of the similar things, kind of getting back to the chapel-like qualities that you said or one thing that I've done in my work also, different types of art that aren't necessarily paintings, is that I've used other artwork as 
as content or subject. And so in the part two of this exhibition, I'm actually uh, working very closely off of the Rothko Chapel. Um, right, so we have part two, part two. Yeah, I, I, I want to hear about part two. So part two starts when? Because that's going to be uh, um, different different works, correct? Yeah, so the, the current exhibition is going to be up until September 7th. Um, there's actually an opening tomorrow, um, uh, August 24th. And then there's going to be a part two. It's going to open September 12th with the opening September 14th, and it'll run through October 7th. And it's in um, a David Richard Gallery on West 26th Street between 10th and 11th in, in Manhattan and New York City and Chelsea uh, Arts Neighborhood. And um, so as I was saying, with, yeah, 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 go on. Yeah, and those paintings are, are very dark, and that's kind of what you were mentioning before. And they do specifically reference uh, the Roscoe Chapel. They also, I mean, I... I made the paintings, the exact number of paintings. I made the the same proportion of, of paintings. Uh, I had to make it a little bit smaller because the paintings are so large they have to fold to fit not just in the door but in the in a truck essentially. Uh, or um, but they're they're just a little bit smaller for practical purposes. And um, in the and, and for me. Um, if you think about the history of painting, you know there was a, a period where there were different tiers of, of kind of respect within painting, and you'd have a landscape would actually be at the bottom. You would have uh, genre paintings, florals, figure paintings, and portraits, and then kind of religious, you know, kind of scenes as as on top of that kind of pyramid, and and then you would have painters basically not. Their, their style would come out, but the, the actual subject would be consistent. And so in that way, I've often um, riffed off of other artists um, as content, kind of almost acknowledging the, in a, not only inability, but um, depletion of content to a degree, are not trying to uh, force that. And then often what I do is I'll add another layer, another entry point, um, that allows a completely different audience to kind of enter and then the other audience wouldn't necessarily see that. So I, I like to make the work as uh, egalitarian as possible. And that's why I think these are very approachable because they have that basis in, in color and in the emotional response. And do you think more so in, this, in part two? Does part two differ that way in terms of... Well, part two, the, all the paintings are very dark. They almost look like monochromes. Um, the the color is very gentle. The paintings are very, very gentle transition. And that's part of the reason why the scale is so significant to make the painting successful in my eyes. Um, it's not just being large for the sake of, you know, just being bigger. Um, the paintings, one of the um, the primary aspects of them technically that I think makes them successful is a gentle transition and that's in relation to your physical uh, body um, and so when the painting is say five foot it's totally different than if it's 27 foot because the, the transition is much more gentle from edge to edge and um, and you experience that in a different way your studio must be huge right do you have a, a huge studio 
Well, this is a really good question, too, because I think um, it boils down to, I mean, this is like a curveball, but it boils down to economics. And right, I think, right. you know, for galleries to compete, you know, I, I've always wanted to do ambitious work with very, and I've been very resourceful and with uh, kind of modest means. So, you know, I'm making these stretcher bars myself. You know, I'm doing this, you know, with one guy helping me just because they're so big, you know, you shouldn't move them by yourself. Um, and I had a huge studio and I got very lucky um, where they were tearing the building down and I just kind of made a, a deal with the super and it was an old bag factory and I just cleared all this kind of debris out. But I mean, it was the scale of a, um, and where was a parking that? garage. It was like 5,000 square feet. It was in Long Island city. Like it's wow. now going to be the biggest building in Queens, but um, but this most recent one, I actually just, I, I painted it in the gallery. You know, they were very um, accommodating with me. I wanted to make it better, which is a bit crazy. Um, but well, right tell now, me a little bit about that. I wanted to come back to that. I wanted to ask you, so you were, you were working on it in the gallery. The gallery wasn't intended to be your studio, but you put it up and then you wanted to, to change it extensively. Can, can you tell me about that? I like that story for its kind of, yeah. you know, um, well, I mean, historically there was the gallery relationship. Yeah. You know, I have a good relation with the gallery it's summer, you know, so things are a bit slow and um, that's the other thing about, you know, they put up shows pretty fast, but we have some flexibility with the timing because it's summer. So I, um, you know, with a lot of my other work, there would be extensive installation time. So I'm kind of, you know, I prepped the whole gallery. I covered the floors. I covered the, the ceiling, the, you know, all of that. Not the ceiling, the walls. Um, and then there was some overs where I ended up having to, you know, restore the gallery back and redo, you know, the walls and the floors a little bit, even as extensive prep. But So, so, then, um, so then the gallery was really your studio. That was, it was intended to build yeah. in there as opposed to... I mean, to it, wasn't, it wasn't really intended. It just kind of, there was an opportunity to do it. And I, I kind of took that opportunity. I'd never really considered doing that, but I, I've done that before with um, more sculptural installations where I will make components of the work. And um, because of the complexity or whatnot, they never fully realize until they're installed in the gallery. And, um, right. and so I've been able to work in more compact spaces. But recently, you know, I... I used to kind of do a lot of work based in installation. And then I, I think I was very uh, taken by this artist, Mark Flood. And I, I met him in, in Miami in like a, a weird kind of garage that he had turned into like a studio and was curating some shows. And I was looking at some books of his practice and it had a big influence on me because I felt that trying to compete to do the type of ambitious work that I wanted to in Manhattan or Brooklyn or wherever in you know, New York City, there was a real limitation. And what he was doing was using like abandoned gas stations or whatever he could get his hands on. And, it, and then he would do the painting and just kind of move it. I had done some residencies and I had taken this kind of approach, but I really adopted this into my practice recently where... Um, I don't want to pay rent on a studio in the same way now. I want to try to figure out a way I can buy something somewhere or I'll just um, create a situation um, where I can make the paintings happen. 
um, and, and not follow a conventional model. I just, I think that it's, um, it limits the capacity to, or at least in my practice, um, to fully realize your potential. And it may seem a bit strange because of the economic burden of it. No, yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. You know, you're living in in New York or the boroughs, uh, you know, and you came from somewhere where there was a lot more space. Typically, the rent so much, even for studios, that I, I, I think that makes sense to say the economics is also determining to some degree the size. But, I mean, um, like for example, but yeah, there's always ways around it. I mean, now I would consider going to another country and getting a space for a month and doing a body of work and shipping it, even if it costs a couple thousand dollars, it could still be less than, you know, the price of a studio, you know, in, in Brooklyn somewhere. Um, so I've, I've just kind of taken a much different approach to a studio practice. The other thing is I've, I've settled into this series. I know what I'm doing, so I'm not wasting time with exploration. You know, I mean, the, the pieces keep getting more refined each time. And the, all the pieces are different, but um, and also I've had a background with the conceptual practice where I think through projects and what the pieces are, and I can uh, manifest them without just being in a studio in a conventional way. And there was a time where I, I remember reading Felix Gonzalez Torres saying he didn't have a studio, and I thought that was just crazy. And it, it has been a bit um, odd, but. Um, you know, it's just it's just kind of what has developed, you know, in in recent uh, time. Mostly because I had two kids, and it's uh, it's just challenging you know, economically. Absolutely, absolutely. It's it's been great talking to you about this, and I, I there's more links here, so listeners can of course go see the show and and learn more both parts. Um, I want to ask you one more question before we go, which is a little off topic. What are you reading at the moment? Um, a lot of the stuff that I read is, is like nonfiction news or research artists. Um, but, um, probably the other one would be like Rene Ricard. I really love his work. Um, you know, I, I love his poetry. I think it's fantastic. Isaac, I want to thank you so much for talking with me today. It's really been a pleasure and I, I wish you well on your show. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you having me. You're listening to Yale Radio WYBC. This is Brainerd Carey with the lives of the artists, architects, curators, and more.